I do love this band, too. They're really, really good. I love the trumpet. Isn't that trumpet great? It's, it's Gabriel-esque. It always reminds me of something holy. And, and, and he's, his name is Angel, too, which I think is appropriate, right? So. Uh, we do not live in a culture that, applaud, that applauds or affirms humility. Humility is not like on the number one qualities that, that people naturally aspire to. We live in a one-up culture where I want to outsmart, outperform, outearn, outaccumulate you. And you see it in, in all of uh, our culture, the communication. I think, I think the best window on our cultural world is the, the world of commercials, how, how Madison Avenue sells the products that, that they want us to buy and, and participate in. Uh, there's a commercial for USAA. It's an insurance company. I've seen it several times. It's a, uh, 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 the opening scene is a, a man by the name of Martin who has a home who uh, has USAA insurance, has been uh, hit by a hailstorm, and his, his backyard is a mess. His roof is ruined. His car windows are all blown out because of the hail. And uh, as, the, as the commercial proceeds, he's, he's joined by an insurance agent, and uh, you see the repairs on his roof, the repairs to his car windows. In the last scene of this commercial, he's eating in the backyard, fully restored home, just a beautiful day, beautiful family. But then there's this little scene where it pans to his fence, and there's a neighbor on the other side of the fence. And this is a statement. He got paid before his neighbor got started. Buy our insurance. You'll be better than your neighbor. There's the, there's the message, right? There's a sad look on the neighbor's face, too. Humility. So who's the person you think of when the topic of humility is raised? Who do you think of most readily? I, I thought about this and thought about it. I thought, okay, I want to be original. But I'm telling you, the person I think of most... I think of humility as Mother Teresa. I'm sorry if that's even cliche now, but I can't think really off the top of my head of someone who personifies humility uh, better than that woman. We, uh, my wife and I traveled to Eastern Europe this past September. We went to uh, Northern Macedonia, which is a relatively new country as they've reconfigured all those Eastern European nations. And uh, the capital of Northern Macedonia is Skopje. And uh, that area used to be part of Albania. And Skopje was the, the city in which Mother Teresa was born. And uh, we visited the, the place where her home was. The home doesn't stand anymore, but there's a plaque in the ground and the little monument there uh, commemorating her. And then right across from our hotel was a little uh, museum with a little chapel in it that commemorated Mother Teresa. It's her hometown. We visited there. Uh, the second floor had this little chapel, and there, there's a... Uh, a, a, a life-size wax figure of Mother Teresa. It looked lifelike. I was expecting her to move at any second. You just look, she's really short. She's only four, four foot, ten inches tall. And this small in stature woman just absolutely made a total impact, uh, not just in, in ministry where she ministered, but all the way around the world. She became a nun in 1929, went to India, was... Uh, uh, involved in teaching school there for 20 years. And around 1948, she was walking the streets of Calcutta, and she said, I got a call within a call. And she saw the poor people with no place to go dying on the streets. She said, there needs to be 
a place of dignity that these people can be ministered to. And she began this, this ministry to the poor. She formed a, a group called the Missionaries of Charity. Today, there are over 5,000 women nationwide nuns that, that participate in this, 450 brothers that do 600 missions in 120 countries. Mother Teresa spent her life ministering to people who were dying. 1979, she won the Nobel Peace Prize and uh, was revered uh, by many and reviled, frankly, by many too, who thought she was doing it somehow for self-centered uh, purposes and, and for, for uh, manipulation of people, but uh, none of that came out in her ministry and in her writing. I, I just think of her when I think of humility. This series is called Undone. O.J. introduced it. It's, it's a series where we talk about the seven deadly sins and the corresponding virtues. Last week, uh, we talked about pride, and uh, we talked about what pride looked like. Pride, uh, the pride of self-sufficiency, I don't need you. The pride of substance, I, 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 I'm more substantial than you. I've got more power than you. I've got more money than you. And, and the uh, pride of superiority. I'm really better than you, smarter than you, better person than you. And all this is what sends us in a direction that is actually sinful. And, and pride is really the sin, I believe, that, that from which all the other sins emanate. I'm put first. So this is a sermon on humility. This is the only sermon topic that you'll uh, never be able to know whether or not you've achieved it. Okay, I'm just going to give you that right, right, right off the top of my head. Uh, you, you, you can't know when you've reached humility because once you think you've gotten there, you've lost it, right? I'm humble. Nope, down we go. It's a prideful statement. Like writing the book, Humility and How I Attained It. That's never going to be quite hammering the point. So I'm not going to give you a sermon that says, get out there and be humble. Because that, it just doesn't work that way. If we went in that, that direction, we, we'd, we'd be in danger of misapplying the whole concept. But here's the promise I'm going to make you. If you stay to the end of the sermon, please do. I'm going to give you the secret of humility at the end of the sermon. Promise. Okay? So the secret is coming. Uh, we're going to get there. Here's, here's my definition. And um, there are a lot of definitions of humility. Um, probably a lot better than this one. But this is the one that I grab onto because I like simple Definitions that focuses me on what I think we need to focus, and this is my definition. Humility is the state of being where you are not self-focused. Humility is a state of being where you are not self-focused. So, last week we spent our time in 2 Corinthians 5. We, we began the story of a man by the name of Naaman. Uh, Naaman was a great man. And uh, he was a general. He was number two in the kingdom of Aram, which was north and, and uh, east of Israel. And they uh, were in battles with Israel uh, about eight, the, the 800s BC, uh, many battles where they, they, they won. And uh, this, this nation, this, this kingdom was, was quite something. And he was the number two in the kingdom. Only the king of Aram was higher than he was. Uh, he was... Uh, Highly regarded, and uh, he was gr a great man, Scripture says. Pro one problem, 
uh, verse 1 of 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Kings 5, it uh, mentions that, that he had something happen to him. He had leprosy. He was a man who came down with a disease that wasn't curable. So we talked last week about him coming to Israel because of a word of a servant girl in his household who said there was a prophet in Israel that, that could help him. And he came, uh, and he came uh, in a real flamboyant way. He brought a lot of money. Uh, he brought an entourage, chariots, horses. I mean, this was, a, this was a procession. And he first goes to the king of Israel, says, hey, I'm here. Can you, can you help me? And the king of Israel tears his robes and says, no, I can't. I don't know why you're here. You're here to trick me. And then Elisha gets word of this. And we'll start in, in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Kings verse uh, uh, 8 of chapter 5. So when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he'll know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots, stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Verse 11, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure my, me of my leprosy. Arnadabana, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in, in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. This is the word of God. Here's the story brought to its completion. Naaman comes to Elisha's house incensed that Elisha doesn't even have the courtesy to come in person and instruct him to do this. He sends a messenger to the door. This is an entourage. These are chariots, horses. You can imagine, you can imagine a, a presidential motorcade rolling up to your house and the president himself getting out of his car and walking to your door and and you not going to the door, but sending a messenger instead. It was that kind of, that kind of quote-unquote disrespect. Naaman was furious. And he didn't do it the way he thought. He thought, wave the hand, cure me. I'm on my way back home. And he goes away in a rage. Elisha says, do this thing. Go down to the Jordan River. Don't just dip once, dip seven times. I can, in my mind's eye, I can go back to the primary department, Christian Fellowship Church in Toledo, Ohio, when I was, when I was probably about in second or third grade. And uh, the story of that day was the story of Naaman. And our highly technical church used flannel graph back then. I don't know if any of you are old enough to use flannel graph, but flannel graph was, was a board about like this, covered with felt, 
had a scene on the back, and then there were these paper cutout people that, that would, would sort of illustrate the story. And I remember our teacher t telling us a story and the this, this scene of Naaman going down the Jordan. And here's what she said. I'll never forget. She goes, he dipped one time, he came up, he wasn't clean. Went down two times, he came up, and wasn't clean. Three times, he came up, he wasn't clean. And on and on. And the seventh time he went down, he came up, he was totally clean. What an interesting process. Naaman now, filled with a whole different spirit, goes back to Elisha. And do and you notice how, how he addresses Elisha? He says, and now I know there's no, there, there's no God, but any, uh, any God but the one in Israel. And, and um, he goes on, verse 17, when Elisha refuses uh, any kind of reward, he says, if you will not, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Then he goes on, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha answered. Here's the story. Naaman comes back and I think he gives us some lessons in humility. Four things that I see, four quick and simple things. First one is this. There's a humility in listening. There's a humility in listening. It's not like Naaman went from being totally prideful to totally humble. His humility began when he listened to a servant girl, probably preteen or early teen, who, who was just serving his wife, who says to his wife, you know, if my master would go, there's a prophet in Israel who can help him. And he listens. He listens. He goes away in a rage from Elisha's house and his servants come to him and they talk to him and he listens. There's a humility in listening. I counsel couples at times and, and uh, they have conversations in my office and we try to resolve problems and I watch them interact and talk back and forth, many times interrupting each other, many times showing hurt, sometimes anger. And I noticed that most of the time they don't have a hard time talking, but they really have a hard time listening. Do you really listen when your spouse speaks, when your parent speaks, when your child speaks? Because Naaman listened initially to a child. I was thinking about this, thinking about children. Have I shown you any pictures of my grandkids lately? No, I haven't, and uh, I know you would like to see them, so I brought a picture. This is a picture of all of them and all the fam. Uh, this is, um, thank you for the awe, that's really sweet. Um, this is um, two days after my 70th birthday. We went to Chicago. We brought the whole crew together, and uh, I'll just, real quick introduction. On the far left is my son-in-law, Justin, who's really tall and big, and we try to really be nice to him because of it. And uh, my daughter, Beth, next to him. The bald guy is me, as you can recognize. Down 
Next, uh, that beautiful woman is my wife, Renee. And then skip the little girl. There's my daughter-in-law, Allie, and my son, Chris. And then there are my five grandkids. They're starting at the left. That's Fiona, who's my daughter's daughter. And then that's Char, my, my son's middle daughter. Zoe, who just turned 13. I have a teenage granddaughter. I can't believe I have a teenage granddaughter. Uh, she's uh, the oldest of my son. And then my wife's holding Mabel, who's just a pill. Uh, but she is just darling, and uh, she's the youngest of my sons. And then the far right is my only grandson, Keller, who's 11 years old and already five foot nine. and we're planning on an NBA career for him. We have an agent already, and, and uh, he's ready to go ahead. My grandson, the reason, one of the reasons I show you this picture, I want you to see my grandson. My grandson was talking with my daughter. It's about, oh, I think in October. And uh, when Justin and Beth were here in Orlando, they, they were came to Summit. They loved Summit and, and really missed it and sort of been in search of a church ever since. And when they moved to Elmhurst, been there three years, they just had gone to church to church, not quite fit. And so my grandson was talking to my daughter uh, in October and he said, Mom, he said, I have some friends that go to this church. It's a, and it's called City Church of, of Elmhurst. And, and could we go to that church? And my daughter, she's sharing the story. She said, you know, the first thing I was like, we've tried all the churches. This, this is probably never going to work. But my daughter had the good sense to listen to her son. And they went. And lo and behold, they really enjoyed the church. And I've been there. It's just a wonderful church. All begun by the fact that she listened to a child. If you want humility, it starts with listening. Humility and listening. Second thing, there's humility and obedience. Humility and obedience. In Naaman's desperate state, he had to become obedient. It wasn't just listening. Listening gets you part of the way there, but you're going to have to act if you're going to be humble. And there has to be an act of obedience, doing what God calls us to do. There's no hum more humble state, and I think you would all agree with this, than when you're not feeling well, when you're ill. It's, it's like, it is, it's hard to function. I told you, uh, 2012, uh, I had to have a heart surgery. I knew most of my adult life that I had a bad aortic valve, and... Um, doctors had told me, yeah, we'll, we'll just keep an eye on it. And I would have regular checkups and they'd give me the status. And I was talking to my GP a few, uh, few years ago. Well, it was 2011. I said, he said, how long has it been since you've been to your cardiologist to have that checked? I said, oh, about three years. He goes, go. You got to go. And I did. My cardiologist, good guy. He took the uh, echocardiogram. And he said, you, you've got to have a new valve. And I went, really? Look at me. I'm walking, can play tennis, you know, I, I you know, can think, I'm okay. I think, do I have to? He goes, I'm telling you, you're going to need a new valve. I said, can, can we hold off just a little, see if it gets, it doesn't get better. But can we see if it's going to get better? He goes, okay, a few more months. I promised to go back. I did. He took the test again. I remember walking into his office. He was sitting at his desk, looking at my results on his computer screen, and he's shaking his head like this. And I went, oh, that's probably not a good sign. He said, you need it right away. Okay. So not even a week later, here's my act of obedience, being carted into the operating room. You can listen, but you've 
but you got to act. You talk about humility? It's humility. One of the people at 9 o'clock wanted to know what kind of valve. It's a bovine valve. It's a cow valve. It's, it's, it's still there. It's functioning quite well. Thank you very much. Very grateful to that cow. Gave its life for me. <laughs> humility and obedience, it states you are not in control. And you need to yield control to other people, people that can bring healing to your life. Naaman need to be obedient. It's not one thing to listen. It's another thing to go in the Jordan and dip. Not once, twice, but seven times. Humility and listening, humility and obedience. Third, humility and gratefulness. Now, humility and gratefulness. And here's where we see, I believe, the greatness of this man. He goes back to the man who humiliated him. Elisha was the one who disrespected him, didn't even come to his door of his house to, say, to, to see him. But he goes back and he humbles himself by his gratitude to Elisha. And more importantly, his gratitude to God. He makes this statement, there is no God in all the world except in Israel. There's humility in being grateful. My son-in-law, whom I love dearly, has this wonderful thing that he does. Every time he receives a gift or anything special happens, he, he thanks us. But he thanks Renee and me by a written note. I like that. There's a humility in his gratefulness. <coughs> I was reminded, so I was thinking of this about a story of Jesus in uh, Luke chapter 17. Luke tells this part of Jesus' ministry. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Samaria is where Elisha was. That's the northern, northern uh, kingdom of Israel who, is, who were uh, captured by the Assyrians. And, and, and they, they call them the ten lost tribes of Israel. They, they intermarried and never were the same, never, never came back fully to Judaism. And the Jews did not like the Samaritans because they, they, had, they had compromised their the. the authenticity of their religion. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy, there's our disease, met him. And at a distance, because they couldn't get close, they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When Jesus saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, as they went, they were cleansed. One of them when he saw he was healed, came back, just one out of the ten. Praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. He was from the lineage of people like Naaman. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Not faith to heal him, faith to put his trust in God, as Naaman did. There's humility and gratefulness. And Naaman, in this one response, proved himself, a non-Jew, to be more faithful than all, the vast majority of, of, of the Jewish nation in Israel who were serving pagan gods and disregarded the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by their very lives. But Naaman says, nope, 
I'm going to honor him as God. He was grateful. Humility of listening, humility of obedience, humility of gratefulness. Last thing, there's humility in worship. In worship. Naaman, Naaman does an interesting thing. He says, Elisha won't take any of his wealth. He's got over a million dollars in gold and silver, 10 changes of clothing, which I'm sure were, were very, very expensive. Elisha says, none of it. I don't want any of it. Then Naaman says, well, I want something. I'm going to take back dirt. Can you imagine? He fills these big containers full of dirt, puts it on two beasts of burden, and says, I'm taking this dirt back. And he gives a hint why in this passage. He, he said, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but, but the Lord. I believe he took this dirt back and he created an area, and on that area he put an altar, and that's where he burned sacrifices to the God he knew healed him from his leprosy. There's a humility in worship. When we worship together, we honor God as our creator. We honor him as someone who above ourselves. And there is a, there's a special sense of humility when I raise my hands in worship or when I raise my heart in worship of a God who gave me life and gave me spiritual life through his son, Jesus. I love worshiping here. I remember years ago, I was at a Wild at Heart boot camp, John Eldridge's boot camp for men. There were 450 men. We were in Colorado. We had a wonderful time growing in our faith, being challenged. <clears throat> Sunday morning, John Eldridge gets up. He says, we have no band, we have no instruments, but you know, there are 450 of us here, men, and, and uh, there are some songs I think you all know. He just put a, a song on the, on, on the screen. He says, let's sing. And someone started, and there's 450 voices without any instrumentation just sort of start to sing, and it was heavenly. It was worship. And these men, me included, were saying, by our singing, there is one greater than us. And he's the one that we adore and honor and praise. So he takes back the dirt from Israel. And then he asks forgiveness for this pagan ritual that he's forced to do because of his role. He has to go in with the, the king of Aram once a year to, to worship this pagan god. He says, look, I have to do this. This is my job. It's in my job description. Just can you forgive your servant for that? Can you give me just a bit of grace in that? And, and Elisha says, go in peace. It's okay. One of my favorite pieces is Handel's Messiah. Friedrich Handel wrote the work in two weeks, it said. He had this profound religious experience, uses scripture. It's all focused on prophecy of, of the Messiah and Jesus himself and what he did for us. Just beautiful, beautiful songs. Of course, you all know probably the Hallelujah Chorus and, and uh, that great, almost at the conclusion, not quite at the conclusion, almost the conclusion of, of that area. And, and I'm telling you, it is a, it's a profound piece of work. And, and the first time it was performed, uh, the King of England was our George II. And uh, tradition says he was so moved by it that he stood. And, and when the king stood, it was, it was a, an act of humility. And when the king stood, everyone had to stand with him. There's humility in worship. And I always ask myself this question, and I ask you this, who do, whom do you worship? If we're caught up in pride, we end up in self-worship, our own self-reliance, our own 
power, our substance, our, our, our superiority takes us to a place that is not good. It takes us away from God himself. So I gave you the definition of, of humility. It's, 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 being self, uh, it's not being self-focused, it's being other-focused. Here's the Christian definition of, of humility. I'll just take it a step further. Humility is the state of being where you are not self-focused, but are Christ-focused. Not self-focused, but Christ-focused. So here's the secret. You stayed around, I'll give it to you. Ready? Secret of humility. Here it is. If you have your eyes on Jesus, you won't have to worry about being humble. It'll take care of itself. You don't have to give yourself a humility evaluation. Just keep looking at him. Mother Teresa wrote a lot of books. I like some of her writings. Here, here's just a little excerpt. People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you're happy, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Do your best anyway. And then she concludes this little vignette by saying this. For you see, in the end, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Mother Teresa said, by birth, I'm an Albanian. By citizenship, I'm an Indian. By religion, I'm a Catholic nun. But it, as to my heart, she said, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. Mother Teresa kept her eyes on Jesus. And that's what I want to do as well. You pray with me, please? Just like to end in a little bit different way. I'd like you to, with your eyes closed, just uh, use this time as uh, one of reflection. I just perhaps there's an area of your life that's that's particularly challenging right now. If you're in school, perhaps it's that. If, if you're in a relationship that's difficult, perhaps it's that. Or financial difficulties, work difficulties, um, health issues. Just pick out one of those issues, and I just want you to, to just focus on that. And then I want you to pray silently that God would give you the power and the ability to look at that challenge through the eyes of Jesus. How Jesus might be using that in your life. Lord, give me, give all my brothers and sisters here today the encouragement to understand that you're the one who's ultimately in control. And even though our lives are difficult and there are things that challenge us daily, that those things can be addressed most effectively by seeing them through your eyes, not our own. And I pray that whatever the pain, whatever the difficulty, that our eyes are focused on you, what you've done, and your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son. Thank you for his humility. Thank you for his humility to the point of death on a cross. 
Thank you that one day every knee will bow to him. And I thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege of knowing you through him. And it's in his lovely and glorious name we pray. Amen.